we are going to finish the seven letters to the churches today. We may even get to chapter four. So um, we're we're within just a phrase or two of finishing Philadelphia. We left off with the whole study of the rapture last time. We'll move a lot quicker now because we've spent a great deal of time defining terms, building background, giving you context. From from this point forward, it should speed up considerably. We're at Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. Christ says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Well, he said this 2,000 years ago. Not exactly our idea of coming quickly. And if you, were, if you were the people in Philadelphia, you're long dead. So what's the point of him saying he's coming quickly? Well, for one thing, the word, when you look at what the Greek word actually means, it does mean quickly in the sense of fast, but it also can mean quickly in the sense of suddenly. And that interpretation of him saying, I will come suddenly, is very consistent with what Christ said all the rest of the time with, I'm going to come unawares, I'm going to come, you know, like a thief in the night. makes a lot of sense in the context of everything else he said. So I assume from the fact that he hasn't come for 2,000 years that it's the second interpretation that is the correct one, that he is saying, I will come suddenly. Hold fast to what you have so no one will take your crown. Crown here is Stephanos, the crown of the overcomer. Move on to verses 12 and 13. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you recall, I don't know if you can remember far enough back to our last couple of lessons, but when we talked about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, we also read some passages about the temple of God and, this, and that God was going to dwell with man. There was going to be, you know, a new temple. And obviously from the context here where it's talking about New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, he's talking about that time period. He's not talking about some time period during the world today. He's talking about when New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven after this heaven and earth has passed away and there's a new heaven and a new earth. So all of these promises to the overcomer are rewards that happen at that point. The rewards that come when the new world order has been established and it's after the thousand year millennial kingdom has passed away. Okay? So Jesus is going to come, we're going to reign on earth for a thousand years, and then heaven and earth are going to pass away. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and then all these promises to the overcomers are going to happen. The term pillar that's used here is used in a, several different ways in Scripture, it's used a lot in the Old Testament. One of the ways is simply architectural. In the descriptions of the temple and the building of the various temples that happened, pillars are described, certain number of pillars to be placed in particular places. There's also the term pillar used to describe God in Exodus. Remember, he went as a pill, either a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke when the, when the Israelites were wandering around in the desert. However... It is also used very frequently to describe a monument. A, a pillar is set up to commemorate. Okay? And, and you have both that being done by people like Jacob to commemorate certain events that happen with God, but you also have pillars that are set up by the pagans, by the idol worshippers. And so in scripture you do see quite a bit of discussion about knocking down pillars that were set up by idol worshippers. So pillars can be either good or bad, not necessarily one or the other. They're in addition to the to the architectural element, they can be living. Where where you really see that pillars are living is when you get to the New Testament. Because in the New Testament there's only two references to pillars 
And both of them are to living pillars. Look at your uh, Galatians chapter 2 verse 7. But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Paul talking about himself as being sent to to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been sent to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, and Cephas, which is another um, word for Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So this is a whole discussion about how the ministry to the Gentiles and the Jews dovetailed and how the ministry to the Jews came first, but when Paul and Barnabas started their ministering to the Gentiles, there was some friction at first because nobody was sure that Jesus really was supposed to be preaching to the that the gospel didn't belong to the Gentiles. There's quite a bit of, of friction there. And he's saying that James, Peter, and John, who were pillars in the Jewish outreach, reached, reached out their hands and welcomed Paul and Barnabas in their outreach to the Gentiles. So right there you see those three men described as pillars. Look at 1 Timothy 3.14. This is Paul again. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So there, the household of God is equated to the church of God, is equated to the pillar that is the support of truth. Okay. In the world. So that's, that's pretty interesting that the pillars are living and that they're saints. This new meaning of pillar then makes sense in the context of Revelation where it says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That doesn't mean he has to stand there and hold up the wall. Okay. What it means is he will always be in the presence of God. And it means that he upholds what God is all about. Okay. So it's the same exact context as these other verses in the, in the New Testament. So then the second promise was we get three new names. We get the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, who is the bride of Christ, remember, and the new name of Christ. Now, as I was contemplating this, it reminded me, what it brought to mind was marriage customs, where you exchange names in a marriage. It also reminded me of the stone. Remember the white stone that was promised to the overcomers in Pergamum, in the church of Pergamum? That stone would have a new name written on it. I think it's all, you know, one in the same name. I don't think there's all these different names. Okay, I, th- I, think, I think we get a new name and our new name, we, we also receive the name of God, the name of the Bride of Christ, the, name, the new name of Christ. A lot of stuff about names in the Bible, huh? Do you remember all the references in the Bible about not taking the name of the Lord in vain? About the power in the name of Jesus God places a tremendous amount of importance on a name and on our name and on whose name we are. I, I don't know if I've ever shared with you. I think I shared with the Daniel class. Back in Genesis, Sarah, Abram and Sarai started out with different names than they had after the covenant had been consummated. So, so they, they were originally named Abram and Sarai. There was this covenant with them and God. And ever after that, their names included an H sound. Abraham and Sarah. That H sound was the very letter that was used by the Jews to construct the name of the Lord so that it was unpronounceable because it was so holy. The, the, they, their name for the Lord was unpronounceable. It was, it was Y-H-W-H. 
That's where we get Yahweh from. We just stuck the vowels in so we could say it. So ever after that covenant, part of the Lord's name was taken into Abraham and Sarah's names. And the Lord after that called himself God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He took their names into his own. This is a repeat in a new covenant where God said, Christ says at the end of time, we're going to do it again. I'll have a new name. You'll have a new name. You'll have the name of God. You'll have the name of the bride of Christ. And you'll have the new name of Christ. Very important. I think parents should pay a lot more attention to the names they give their children. There's significance in names. We're finished with Philadelphia. We're ready to start Laodicea, the very last of the seven churches. Let's read through the, the whole little letter and then go back and talk about the pieces. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and I have no need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we want to start out with how Christ represents himself, right? Because that had significance in each of the other letters. Well, look what he says. It's kind of out of order here. But what he says is, I am the beginning of the creation of God. And I am the Amen. I am the beginning and the end. I am, it's the same thing as what he said in Revelation 1.8 where he said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, right? He also, the part in the middle is the faithful and true witness, okay? Which is what he was during that whole part in the middle was the faithful and true witness. Look back, if you look back at Revelation uh, 2, verse, chapter 1, verse 2, very, very, very first part of Revelation that sets up the whole book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to Jesus to show us the things that must take place. God sent it by communicating it to his angel, who communicated it to John, who then testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Alright, so this whole book is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's what is said at the very last letter to the church. That I am Christ, the beginning and the end, and the one who is bearing witness to all, that all the things in this book are true. In addition to everything else that God said is true. The most famous condemnation, the one that most people know, even people who know very little about Revelation, is the condemnation to the church at Laodicea. I will spit you out of my mouth because you are lukewarm. Now, just like all the rest of the letters, Christ talked to them in a kind of parable, in a context they could understand. One, and he used two here. He used the context of being lukewarm water and the context of being blind. Now, the lukewarm water really meant a lot to the people in Laodicea. It was a very wealthy town. Beautiful town, lots of commerce, lots of trade, very smug people. They had one problem. They did not have a water supply nearby. They had to build an aqueduct to bring their water from some hot springs that were six miles away. 
Now, how, what temperature do you think that water was the time it got to them? Lukewarm. It was lukewarm. Can you imagine what a constant source of irritation that was to the population of Laodicea? So they understood how annoying it was to have lukewarm water every day, day in and day out. Now, people who read this kind of casually think that, well, hot water, hot would mean that you're, you know, on fire for the Lord and cold would mean your ardor has cooled, right? That can't be what this means here because Christ said he wanted them to be either hot or cold. Now, if cold means that their ardor has cooled off, why would Christ want them to be cold? That makes no sense. So clearly, that's not what that means. What that means is they had lost their effectiveness. Cold water refreshes. Cold water revives revitalizes hot water you use to purify hot water is used to soothe and to heal all the whole imagery of water you know is and of living water nobody ever even thinks of living water as being lukewarm because it it it, it wouldn't be right so Christ is saying you have lost your effectiveness you're neither able to purify nor to heal, nor are you able to refresh and revitalize. I'm going to spit you out of, your, out of my mouth. You have the form, but not the substance. Sounds like some churches are today, doesn't it? Really, all of these letters have sounded like some churches yeah. <laughs> today. That's right. That's right. So move on and look at the second kind of parable or context that he talked to them about, and that was being blind. Laodicea was famous worldwide for their eye salve. It was one of their major exports. For they were able to heal eyes. And Christ said, you know what? You think you're wealthy. You think you're, you can see. You think you're hot stuff. You think you're doing everything you should be doing. And really you are poor, blind, wretched, naked. Now, we know what nakedness means in the context of Scripture because we've studied it, right? What have garments consistently meant? Do you remember? Garments of white are your righteous deeds. It's the outworking of your faith. It's the things that God calls you to do that you are obedient to do. That is the righteous deeds. He says, you're naked, Laodicea. When God talks about the things he wants them to buy, when he says, buy from me gold refined by fire, what's he talking about? Is he talking about physical stuff? Never. (laughs) He's not talking about physical stuff. He's talking about spiritual Follow me and do, okay? Follow me and do what I ask you to do. Think about it. We've studied about gold and refining and fire in, in some of our earlier lessons. What could we possibly buy the gold with? He says, buy gold from me. That's right, Marvin. Buy it with ourselves. All we have to offer is ourselves. We have nothing of worth, right? We have nothing of worth, nothing he wants except our love, ourselves, our will. And he says, so we know, and anybody who's been a Christian any time at all will know, you can lay yourself down for God. And what happens then? You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is that fire that purifies. The Holy Spirit is the process that happens. Okay? So Christ says, buy from me gold refined by fire. That's what he's talking about when he says that. The Laodiceans would have had apparently no concept of the fact that 
their sufferings, their trials, their tribulations, all of the darts that Satan could throw at them, could ever be used by the Holy Spirit to purify and refine them, to drive them to their knees, to give up their own will and trying to do it in their own power. They were very much into their own power. The whole section would be foreign to Laodicea. And yet Christ says, you know, this is going to feel kind of uncomfortable. Doesn't it? When, when you're being refined by fire and the chaff being burned away, that's not a pleasant experience. It's not. <laughs> if, if you're finding it to be a pleasant experience, you need to go back and try again. <laughs> and Laodicea, the church at Laodicea, was having a pleasant experience in their walk. They were wealthy. They were blessed and they weren't following Christ. They had lost their effectiveness. Christ immediately assures them, repent, be zealous for me, be aware that as you go through this discomfort of being refined by fire, I am only disciplining you and I only discipline those I love. Obviously, Christ thought there was hope for the church at Laodicea. Right? I think we're fast to give up on the church of Laodicea. But Christ hadn't got, given up for them. And then in verse 20, you have the classic picture that you see in art that you carry in your heart. Christ standing at the door knocking saying, open the door, I will come in. I promise I will come in. Now, I think that's very interesting to compare that door to the door that was mentioned at the Church of Philadelphia. Remember, the Church of Philadelphia was small and weak. But Christ said, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. In Laodicea, Laodicea had already shut the door. Laodicea held their door shut. And Christ said, open the door so I can come in. I want you to look at the handout that's the grid. It's, it's titled Church History. We finished now all seven letters to the churches. And, and I want to share with you kind of a world view of the interpretation of these seven letters that I'm not sure I buy into, but it has enough merit and enough people really believe this. And it and I can see it. I can. I can see the argument for this that I think I should share this with you. Okay? And it's also a great little summary of the seven letters. The, the premise is that the seven churches in Revelation are representative of seven periods in the history of the church. And that they're presented in Revelation in order, in historical sequential order. The way that it goes is the first church, which is Ephesus, is what would be viewed as the apostolic period of the church from the death of Christ through the first century. So the whole the whole mission of the church at that point was planting churches. Right. It was Paul going around planting new congregations. And if you think about the characteristics of that kind of an apostolic period and compare it to what was said to Ephesus, in Ephesus, Christ was portrayed as someone holding the churches and walking among them. The church itself was portrayed as being hardworking, persevering in face of hardship. It was also portrayed as not tolerating evil men or false teachers. That would be critical during an apostolic period, right? To differentiate the Christians from the pagans. But he, his condemnation of Ephesus was that, you know what? You've fallen away from your first love. And, sec, and lastly, that overcomers will eat of the tree of life in paradise. Okay? So then you move to the letter of, to Smyrna. This is supposedly the persecution period. This is when the brand new church is being persecuted. Um, and that, would happen in, that did happen in the second and third centuries. 
To the church undergoing persecution, Christ was portrayed as the resurrected one, the first and the last. Well, that, if you're get being martyred, that's a very important worldview of Christ, right? The, the church was portrayed as outwardly being afflicted and impoverished, but inwardly spiritually rich. That is a natural phenomena of persecution. Anytime you find persecution, the church grows stronger and richer and deeper. The roots go deeper. They have to. The church is predicted for Smyrna to be about to experience suffering, prison, and persecution to the point of death for ten days. Now, people who hold to this interpretation as that being a church age will say, I can count ten Roman emperors who persecuted the church. And that's what they say the ten days are. Problem is, they all count ten different ones, but never mind. Okay, and that's a problem to me if you can count ten different ones. But I'm still willing to see the point and say, okay, I, I can see that. Overcomers will receive the crown of life and will not be hurt by the second death. That all makes sense if you're undergoing persecution, okay, if, that this would be the message to you. One of the problems I kind of have with the ch- this whole church history view is that it implies that the people in that time period receive different rewards from people in another time period. Okay? It, it, you lose the universality of the promises. So it, it, it implies that people in the first and second century, if they overcome, they eat of the tree of life in paradise. It implies that people who lived in the second and third centuries will receive the crown of life and not be hurt by the second death. You see my point? So, a lot of people who believe that these are church ages also believe it is, these letters are also and meant to apply to all churches of all ages as well. Okay? Which is what I think. I think these letters apply to all churches of all ages. Or to churches of all ages. The, the third church was Pergamum. Fourth through the sixth century is what you might call the institutionalization period. This is where Constantine declared Christianity to be the official religion of the state. Pergamum, then, is kind of cozy, you know, and during this period, the church is cozying up to the state and becoming political. Okay? They're, they're blurring the outlines between spiritual and worldly. Christ is portrayed as having a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. That would be a sword of truth to divide false from true, right? The church lives where Satan has his throne. And when we studied that, we discovered that Pergamum was at the seat of government. Remember, that particular church was at the seat of government. But they still remain faithful. The church has begun to tolerate false teachers who were like Balaam, who tempted the Israelites into idolatry basically tempting them through sex to fall into idolatry. Overcomers will receive the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Fourth period, Thyatira. This would be the 7th through the 16th centuries. This is the period of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is the only choice of church, essentially. Okay, now it does do some splits and there's an Eastern and a Western Catholic Church, but Basically, you're talking Catholic Church here. The church at that time, if you studied any church history, was extremely corrupt. I mean, you had more than one pope at different times. They married. They went to war. They murdered. It was political. It was just horrible. And there was a great deal of selling of the grace of God. Okay, Selling of forgiveness for many. The the church was in a... large part about money and power and that money and power was concentrated in the hierarchy of the church the priests, the bishops, the cardinals, the pope very different than it is today it's a different Catholic church than it is today Okay, during this period Christ to this church was portrayed in power and anger with eyes of blazing fire and feet like glowing metal 
the church, he said, was doing more works than ever. That was true. Think about those cathedrals that were built and the people who were brought to, really into Christianity during that period of time. All right? There was a good side to the Catholic Church. But Christ accused the church of allowing false teaching to lead believers astray, especially into sexual immorality. Jezebel, that false teacher, was unwilling to repent. She and those who follow her are to suffer intensely and her descendants will be struck dead. Now, this is where you begin to kind of run into problems as far as I'm concerned. Because it's right here that a large number of Protestant denominations point to that passage about Jezebel. They are trying to fit these churches into this world view. And they say, aha, the Catholic Church is wicked. The Pope is the Antichrist. Okay, you know, if you're Catholic, you're going to hell. And I'm telling you, I've been there. (laughs) I know that people truly believe this. Okay, I think that's hogwash. Okay, I'm here to tell you there's real Christians in the Catholic Church today. I'm here to tell you there's some doctrine in the Catholic Church I have a problem with. But I'm here also to tell you there's some doctrine in these Protestant denominations I have a problem with too. So you need, it's real good to study this with a view to gleaning out of these different interpretations what is meaningful and helpful. But don't get dogmatic about it to the point that you're pointing fingers at a whole denomination and saying you're Jezebel and the Antichrist. I, I think that's not true nowadays. Okay. Definitely the Catholic Church had problem back in, in this period of time. It said overcomers will receive authority to rule over all nations and will receive the morning star. So then you're moving into the 16th and 17th centuries. This would be represented by the church at Sardis. This is the Reformation period, the famous Martin Luther nailing up his theses on the door of the Catholic Church. Now, if you're not familiar with Luther, he was actually a brother in the Catholic Church hierarchy. And he had a real problem with the church selling forgiveness and grace. He had a problem with coming to confession and the priest saying, well, if you pay me, you know, hundred bucks and crawl up this flight of stairs on your knees, you'll be forgiven. Okay. He had a problem with that. I think he had a valid point. (laughs) Um, And and his courage at standing up to the Catholic Church that he loved dearly and that he was a part of from childhood caused kind of everybody, the shackles to fall off the eyes or the, the, the... the blinders to fall off the eyes. It caused people to see that the emperor had no clothes on, okay, to use a, a fairy tale. It, it caused people to realize how far off track the Catholic Church had gotten. And that began the Reformation movement and was the beginning of the Protestant denominations, the Protestant faith. At, in the church at Sardis, Christ is portrayed as hold, holding the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God, and the angels, the spirits of the seven churches. The church, he said, had a reputation of being alive, but was really dead. Their deeds were not complete in the sight of God. They need to wake up. And the few who have not soiled their garments will walk with Christ along with the overcomers, will not be, and they will not be blotted out of the book of life, and Christ will acknowledge them as his own. Now, that whole message to me would seem to be a message to the Catholic to the church as a whole at the point that the Reformation happened. If I was going to buy this, okay, I would say that's a point in time thing. That's not the whole period of the Reformation. I'd call it a point in time. Okay? But most people who interpret this say that whole message was meant to, to be to the Reformation period and the growth of the Protestant church. Then you get to Philadelphia which is the 18th through the 20th centuries, most people will say that is the missionary period of the church. And that is true. If you study church history, you find that the Protestant churches did not begin their missions until 
the 18th century. And there were some very famous missionaries during that period, most notably to India and, and that part of the world. However, if I'm Catholic, I'm saying, well, wait a minute. We had people all over the world. The Jesuits were all over the world long before the 18th century. Okay. So this is another place where I think the, the interpretation falls apart. Because for this interpretation to work as a church age, you have to believe that it's about the Protestant churches and not the Catholic church. So you're chunking off a whole bunch of Christians there. Okay. So just pointing that out. <laughs> okay. So that, so that you know. But if you believe that this is the missionary period of the Protestant church, the message kind of makes a lot of sense. Here's what it says. Christ is portrayed as opening what no one can shut and shutting what no one can open. Christ has placed an open door before the church. No one can shut it. The church has little strength, which would make sense if you're a missionary in the mission field, right? Is harassed by Jews whom Christ will cause to repent. And certainly missionaries are harassed nowadays by people other than Jews. Christ will hold them fast out of the great tribulation. And he urges the church also to hold on to what they have. Overcomers will become pillars in the temple and will never again have to leave the presence of God and will receive new names. That's what we just studied. Lastly, you get to the church of Laodicea. That would be the early 20th century to, to the present. And I want to stop there and point out another thing. Is people who devise schemes like this that define prophecy in terms of particular historical events and I'm talking about future prophecy I'm not talking about that stuff like in Daniel that was obviously Persian Empire Greek Empire stuff that we know happened people who devise schemes like this almost always put themselves last they're the one at the end they're never the one in the middle and there's something else to come so that is just another reason I look at this and I think mm, grain of salt here Okay. Um, however, I do actually believe we are in an age of apostasy. I think that that makes a great deal. That is a defining characteristic of churches nowadays. Although I can find churches nowadays that exhibit characteristics of each of these seven churches. Right? I think this is a universal message. But the age of apostasy, apostasy means falling away is where the Protestant church, and you have to be saying Protestant at this point, right? Because you've already lopped off the Catholic church in this theory. So the, this is where the Protestant church would be losing its effectiveness. Believers would be distracted by personal wealth, being comfortable, the world. In Laodicea, Christ is portrayed as the amen, the true witness, the ruler of creation. The church is disgusting and as useless as lukewarm water. The church thinks itself wealthy, though spiritually they are pitiful, poor, and blind. All this makes sense in terms of an age of apostasy, which we do know happens at the end time. Christ loves and disciplines them, calling them to open the door to him. Overcomers will rule with Christ. Any comments or thoughts on that? Okay, food for thought. Um, Let's go forward to Revelation chapter 4. We are finished with the seven letters. We're ready to start the really weird part of Revelation and some of the more bizarre kinds of prophecies. The ones that are a lot harder to understand. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. There's two points here. First, the verse gives us some important clues about where the action is taking place. Because John is being called up into heaven, we know, therefore, the vision about the seven churches occurred while he was on earth, spiritually on earth. It was things happening on earth. Remember when we studied in Daniel, we did a, 
we did a grid at one point when the prophecy got confusing and we kind of sorted out, well, which parts of this prophecy are happening in heaven and which parts of this prophecy are happening on earth, which parts of this prophecy are symbolic. We're going to need to do some of that in Revelation. So what this verse is telling us is we just finished with the stuff that's happening on earth. Now we're going to look at what's happening in heaven. Okay. Now, normally in a prophecy, I would say, oh, they're fixing to back up and tell us what's happening in heaven at the same time as all those things happening on earth. To keep us from doing that, because that is typically how scripture is written. There's a special little phrase in here that says, the things I'm going to show you in heaven are the things that happen after the things that happened on earth. Okay, very specific time frame here. That's also consistent with what we saw in chapter 1, verse 19. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 19, there's kind of a little outline, a time frame for Revelation. At at the very beginning of of the Revelation, Christ says, Christ has already come. He's revealed himself in all those different characteristics, the amen, the alpha, the omega, the burning sword, the polished feet, all that stuff. He's seen the candlesticks. He's seen the lamps. And, and at that point, verse 19 happens. And Christ says, John, write down everything you've seen. Okay, well, that would be everything he just saw, right? So John writes that all down. He says, John, write down the things that are. Now, we understand that to mean the things about those seven churches, the things they exist, right? So he writes all that stuff down. He says, John, write down the things that will happen after that. Okay, so in verse 19, we get that threefold division. Here in chapter 4, he repeats the phrase, John, these are the things that are going to happen after those things. Okay, we're we're to that point now. So we are able to tell exactly where kind of quote the future starts. Okay, in the book of Revelation. So what does it say? Oh, I I missed a piece. Says come up here. Remember where it says to John come up here and I will show you, you know, what must take place after these things. Well, these things are the, the churches, right? A lot of people find evidence of the rapture in this verse. They say, first off, when it says, come here, that Christ isn't just talking to John. He's talking to the churches. And come here up to heaven at this point. And they also say that since the things that are going to be revealed happen after the things that already were, which would be the seven churches, that the church must go away before all these things, other things happen. Okay? So, if you're weighing in your mind rapture before or rapture after, that's, that's a verse that is pointed out as, as meaning the church is gone. Now, I think you can just as validly interpret, it, interpret this verse as meaning God's talking to John, saying, John, come to heaven and look what's going on here. I don't think he was talking to the churches at that point in the context of the scripture. And it can also simply mean these are the things that happen after the churches make their choices. Okay, I think the churches have choices set before them in, in the first seven letters. And at some point, time runs out. And we get to the end of time. And everybody lives with the choice that they made. Okay, so you can interpret it either way, whatever you think is correct. Revelation 4, verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, 
Jasper, Sardis, and emeralds, of course, are all precious stones. The jasper and the emerald are both green stones. Yeah. Carnelian. Yeah, exactly. They, the words that are used in the Greek, we don't necessarily aren't able to connect them to English words for stones one for one. So you will find a lot of different variations. What does your say? My, my footnote says that jasper is clear as crystal. So hers. Okay, and so so some of your translations will say jasper is clear as crystal. Actually, all we know is jasper was some kind of a crystal, and some the sources I looked in, some of them said clear, some of them said green. So it just whatever. It's a precious stone. The sardis is, in some translations, actually translated ruby. Okay, it's a, it's a red stone. Okay. In any case, it's quite glorious. Then we get to the important part, which is those 24 elders. Now, these 24 elders pop up in a lot of places in Revelation. There is absolutely no definition as to who they are where they came from, nothing. Anybody that tells you they know who those 24 elders is, you need to think back about the rest of the stuff they told you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, however, you can look at scriptural context and understand a lot about the function of the elders and maybe a little about who they might be. So I... In your scripture handouts, we're going to spend the last couple of minutes of class talking about who are elders. Looking back in the Old Testament, there have been elders from the very beginning. Obviously, elder means older in in some context, the elder brother, right? Okay. But generally speaking, when the term is used as a title, elders means men. Generally, we think of it as clan leaders, patriarchs. Even before Israel was a nation, they had a concept of elders. They had elders before they ever were a nation. If you look at Genesis 50, verse 7, Joseph goes up to bury his father. He takes with him all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt. So we know that elders as a hierarchy, a place in the hierarchy, existed from forever. We tend to think of elders as being the wisest and most capable, you know, the chosen kind of leaders. Uh Uh-uh. That's not what it's used like in Scripture. And we have a couple of places we know that. One of the places is back in Exodus 18, verse 12, starting in verse 12. This is the story when Moses is out in the wilderness with the multitude of Israelites, and they are being as recalcitrant as they ever were. This is the most difficult people you could ever imagine leading around. Every two seconds, they're belly aching. They want to go back to Egypt. They're, they're threatening to stone Moses. And Moses gets a visit from his father-in-law. His, father is, his father-in-law is named Jethro. And look at the first thing that says. They basically worship together and eat dinner. Okay? It says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron, who was Moses' brother, came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. So Jethro, Aaron, and Moses sit down with the elders of Israel, who have to exist at this point, right? Okay? Now look what happens. Then Moses starts doing his thing. And Jethro's just watching them, all this happening. All the people come to Moses. He took my tent. I want it back. And, and Moses has to make a decision. Okay? Moses judges. You know, this guy stole this. This guy did something bad to me. You know, I, this guy was going to sell me something he didn't pay me. Moses, you know, this person committed adultery. Moses is spending his life acting as a judge and settling disputes amongst the Israelites well Jethro says Moses you're going to wear yourself out you're going to wear the people out you're going to wear yourself out you need help and so Moses like every son-in-law in in the world says ha you're right 
father-in-law. <laughs> You're right. That's great advice. So Jethro says, here's what you need to do. You be the, and I'm in verse uh, 19. You be the people's representative before God. You bring their disputes to God. Then teach the people the statutes and laws. Make known to them the way in which they're supposed to walk and the work they are supposed to do. And then you pick out able men who fear God. Men of truth who hate dishonest gain and you make them leaders of groups of people make them there's groups of tens and then there'll be a leader over sets five sets of tens the fifties leaders over hundreds and leaders over thousands let them be the judges of all these little disputes and then if there's something big that they can't do on their own then you decide the big stuff okay that way Moses you're not going to get burned out because at this rate you can't one man cannot do this there's way too many people Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people and they judged the people just like Jethro had advised those able men were different people than the elders remember now, certainly some of the able men could have been elders, okay, presumably were, but they're not one in the same population. Okay. Elders existed, but in a different function. They exist simply by who they are, by their existence, their place in the, in the clan. Elders are typically in scripture used as a representative of, a, of the people and as a point of communication. Okay. If, if, Moses wanted to communicate to the entire congregation of Israel, all the whole nation. He'd call the elders in. He'd give them the message. They would then spread the message to their constituencies. Okay. It worked the other way around, too. I gave you a verse in Leviticus 4.13 that says, you know what? If the whole nation has sinned. We need to have a, a sacrifice, right? A, a bull offering, a sin offering. He said, what needs to happen is the elders need to come, lay their hands on, the, on that bull, and basically lay their sin on, of the people on that bull, and then you sacrifice that bull. So the elders, it worked the opposite direction. Whenever the congregation needed a representative before God, it was the elders. Okay. Not because they were good, not because they were wise, because of who they were. Okay. They were the representative of the people. When the Lord made a covenant with Israel in the land of Moab in Deuteronomy 29.10, there was a list made of the hierarchy of Israel. And if we read that list, we can see where the elders fit in that hierarchy. Let's look at it. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God. Your chiefs, that would be at the top. Your tribes, the collective you, okay. Your elders, your officers, even all the men of Israel. Your little ones, your wives, so the women were even lower than the children. And the alien within your camp. Okay. So you can see where elders fit in the hierarchy. And the elders in scripture is, are not just a Jewish phenomenon. There were elders of the Philistine cities. Every city had elders who represented represented that city. Um, They are frequently, since they are elders and presumably more experienced, okay, they are also presumably wiser. That's not always the case, but presumably so. And so very frequently elders would be asked to give counsel. To the king and to the leaders. And that I, in Ezekiel 7.26 is an example of that. The function of the elders continued in this capacity into the New Testament period. When you read the gospel about the trial of Jesus, it consistently says that Jesus was, and about his ministry, that he was harassed. And when he was condemned to death, it was by the chief priests the scribes, and the elders of the people. Those three are consistently listed. So that is how the people 
bore the sin, how they sinned against Christ. Even if you know, they weren't physically there, their elders, their representatives were the ones who put Christ to death. In addition to that whole scene with Barabbas and the people crying crucify him. Now, within the hierarchy of the Christian church, however, there were no elders because every believer was a new believer. This was brand new. There was nobody experienced. There was nobody who could naturally be looked to as the experienced Christian in the group. Okay, so they had to appoint elders. And that's where we get some great description about what characteristics an elder should have because Paul was very clear to the congregations as to what types of Christians they should select as their elders and also very clear that they needed elders they needed this stand this this point of communication there's a list here we're not going to read through it but in Acts 14:23 we find that elders are appointed. That makes sense. They're, they couldn't have been homegrown at that point. Although presumably by now, elders are homegrown. That's not really how we do it, but that's... Would, if you go back to what an elder is supposed to be in an Old Testament sense, you would assume that elders nowadays should be the ones who have matured and risen to be the most experienced people in the congregation. Titus chapter 1, verses... 5 through 9 explain that elders should be blameless, holy, disciplined, and able to stand up to others. They can't be wimps that are afraid of a confrontation. 1 Timothy 5.17 says elders direct the affairs of the church. Even some of them preach and teach. That makes sense if, they're who, if they have grown in maturity as they should. Because the difference between the Old Testament elders and the New Testament elders is the Old Testament elders were simply the wisest, the eldest and most experienced of the clans. There wasn't necessarily a spiritual connotation. The New Testament changed it to a spiritual family in which the elders are the spiritually eldest, not necessarily the chronologically eldest. Um, in I fact, also think it sounds like what a pastor would be. It sounds like what a pastor would be. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, These are all the same things that Paul said to Timothy that he should be. That our faith, well, our faith doesn't. That's preacher right. And teacher and, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and you know, really, it's what all of us should be. Right. It's, it's what we are all called to mature in faith. That's what Paul's message was about moving from spiritual milk to spiritual meat. We should all be maturing. We should all become spiritual elders. Okay? It's not like you're going to ride somebody else's coattails into heaven. Okay? So then James 5.13, elders pray for the sick. And this is one of my favorite verses where it says, For the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. God listens. There's, it is scriptural that God closes his ears to people who just call on him when they get in trouble, you know, when, he, when they haven't answered him when he's called them any time before. But he, and here it says that he is constantly listening to the prayers of the righteous. And lastly, in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5, elders are the shepherds of the flock of God, Leading by example. There's an interesting passage, and this is the last that I want to share with you. An interesting passage in Isaiah that talks about elders at the end of time. In Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 23, and I I skipped all the verses in between verse 6 and 21 because it was a poem right in the middle there. But, but this whole passage says, talks about the day, basically the day of the Lord. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress. In other words, everybody is kind of leveled out. There's no more hierarchy. 
The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Now, we know from our study of the day of the Lord that that's what this is. We recognize the characteristics, right? So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. His elders. There will be people at that time who are his elders. Now, I'm thinking that those elders must be the representatives of his people collectively who are here on earth, right? This is, I mean, I think there is a presence of the church here on earth at this time. You know, and I've told you that, but... But there will be elders at that time. Now, these are not necessarily the elders of Israel. Because in Ezekiel chapters 8 and 9, there's this, and we're not going to read all this, but there's this whole vision that Ezekiel has where the Lord comes and grabs him by his hair, literally, and drags him in front of the temple and says, look at this. I am totally disgusted with this. And he looks in there and he sees all kind of creeping, crawling, disgusting, nasty thing in the temple. And then God says, look who is in there. And the people in the, in the temple were the 70 elders of Israel. And God said, and you know what? I'm going to show you some even more disgusting things. Because they think they cannot be seen. They think they're hidden. Their deeds of, of the heart are hidden. But I see them. And God then goes on to call executioners to say, go through Jerusalem and execute everybody you find there. But do not execute those with the mark of the Lord on their forehead. So there's clearly in Israel people of God. But he says, when you do the execution, start with the elders. Sobering, huh? So apparently there are elders of Israel at that time who are completely corrupt. But there are elders of the believers whom God recognizes as his elders. Now, that gives us a little more context about the 24 elders that we're reading about in Revelation who are sitting on 24 thrones. We now know that elders are always a subset of a larger group, right? We know they are representatives of that group, and we know they're shepherds of that group. So it stands to reason that the 24 elders seated on thrones who are always in the presence of God are some members who came out of the group of believers, who represent the believers before God and who, in some sense, are shepherding us. Okay, They just simply represent the people of God before God. And I've given you at the end of your handout all the references in Revelation where you find these 24 elders. And if you read through them, you find that they have a consistent function and location. They are always sitting on thrones surrounding the throne of God. They are dressed in white, which we know is righteous deeds, right? And they have crowns of gold, which we now know means they're overcomers, right? Okay. They have overcome. They worship God, praising him day and night. That is one of their main functions, is to worship God. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have representatives in heaven who are worshiping God day and night 
whom God sees and kind of counts it, counts it towards us as righteousness. Okay. <laughs> because I, I think that we don't worship near enough. All right. They have, it says, that they give him praise day and night and they're always in the presence of God. Could they be pillars like we just read about in Laodicea? Pillars in the temple of God never leaving his presence. In, in one of the verses in Revelation 5.8 it says they have harps. This is where the whole thing about having golden harps in heaven comes from. They have harps and they have golden bowls that says filled with the sweet smell of the prayers of the saints. Now doesn't that make sense if an elder is, the, is a point of communication? Doesn't it make sense that the sweet smell of our prayers is collected in the bowls, spirit, metaphorically, in the bowls of these, of these elders who, and is always there in clouds of fragrance before the throne of God? The common interpretation of the elders that you will find in most commentary is that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. Given what we've learned today, that's not a bad interpretation. And we'll stop there.